Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Hi, this is Mariana Mastracchio from the Descubriendo Charlotte Mason podcast, and I'm here with Art Middlecoff from the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We are doing a very special episode today where we'll be talking about Charlotte Mason's motto. Hi, Mariana. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So just to give a little bit of a background, I am in an idle challenge discussion group with several other home educating parents, including Art. Uh, the idle challenge is an opportunity to read Charlotte Mason's six volumes in a two-year schedule where we narrate, share questions, and inspiration from, from the reading that we do that month. Yeah, I mean, the Idle Challenge, we've been doing that now for, um, this is like seven years, and um, there have been so many interesting discussions through these groups that I've been involved in that it's really kind of sparked a lot of my own research and learning and understanding about Charlotte Mason's ideas. So, um, so yeah, it's been really, it's been a, I really have enjoyed all of those groups. Great. And, and, and this spark of ideas, right? At, we had a, a very fruitful discussion uh, from a recent Idol Challenge meeting, and I was left very intrigued by what was shared about Mason's popular motto, I am, I can, I ought, I will. Uh, on that occasion, one of the meeting participants uh, asked for more clarification about the I am, and I didn't think twice uh, about it. It had I had assumed the answer would be pretty obvious and simple. However, <laughs> Art presented some information that was very new to me. And once the meeting was over, I knew I had to ask him more questions. So what I had thought I understood about Mason's motto was hindering me from getting the full grasp of the meaning of each one of those four verbs in sequence. So I messaged Art asking if he would uh, be willing to discuss this further in a podcast I co-host for the Portuguese-speaking community, but he had an even better idea. <laughs> well, I thought, yeah, I mean, I thought that um, that our English-speaking community, Charlotte Mason community, would be interested in this conversation as well. So I asked Mariana if she could, um, you know, if we could have this conversation in English and uh, and maybe share it first on the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast and then in Portuguese. So I'm thankful for Mariana for you investing the time to uh, to really dig into this um, topic of the motto. And, um, you know, it's interesting because you refer to it as Miss Mason's motto or Charlotte Mason's motto. And um, actually, if you look at uh, the 20 principles, Charlotte Mason writes that the PNEU motto is education is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life. Mm -hmm. So that's the PNEU motto, the Parents' National Educational Union, which is the first organization that Charlotte Mason formed. So that raises a question, well, wait a minute, what, what is this motto if it's not the PNEU motto? And it turns out that it's the parents' union school motto. Mm -hmm. So it's the motto for the school that she founded, uh, kind of a correspondence school, sort of, or a homeschool program. And so this motto um, is really for all of the students and I suppose the teachers of the parents' union school. So that's the specific motto. Interesting that there's more than one. Yes, I've noticed that the models she liked that and i think she encouraged a model book as well for the students mm -hmm. to keep so um 
And those are kind of nice things that we keep thinking through our days. And it's nice to give our students that kind of ideas too. But okay, so I do have a few questions for Art to explore more this topic. So what, what is this model and why she presented that? Art, do you have any personal experience with the model itself? And ha has it made a difference in your life or the life of your family? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think for me, like this motto, the four, the four verbs, let's call it. Um, that's probably a good way to summarize it. The four verbs, I am, I can, I ought, I will. That that does have personal significance to me, as I'm sure it does for many, many people who have embraced Charlotte Mason's ideas. And um, I was just going back, you know, I've been reading Charlotte Mason for 20 years now. Um, but uh, I, I, there's one particular moment that I just want to share about when the motto was especially significant to me. And this was back in 2009, so 14 years ago. And you may know, Mariana, that um, my wife had been uh, diagnosed with cancer and she had stage four cancer that year. And praise God, she's been fully recovered. And um, But it was quite serious at the time. And uh, so I went back and looked at my email archives and I've recalled that um, so she had been diagnosed with cancer in January of 2009, and I sent an email in March of that year, so two months after her diagnosis, to a, a study group. I was studying Charlotte Mason's volumes in an email group because that was, you know, before we had Zoom and we didn't have the Idle Challenge and stuff like that, so we shared emails. And I just want to read to you what I wrote um, it was quite, um, I mean, it really struck me when I just reading this again now, 14 years later and remembering those moments. But uh, this is what I, this is how I uh, wrote, I wrote to my friends who we were studying Charlotte Mason's books together. I said, in January, my beloved was diagnosed with cancer. In the two months since there have been tests, doctor visits and surgeries. She began chemotherapy yesterday. Her condition is very serious, but we are also filled with hope. Indeed, my heart can only hope because to me, she is life incarnate. No one in the world is so alive as she is. Only in her have I ever known true happiness. For the past 15 years, my prayer has always been that I would never spend a day without her in this world. Would you please pray this prayer with me? Though each day is filled with hope, I also carry a sorrow and a grief with me wherever I go. I face the demands of my job. I see the faces of my nine-year-old, my six-year-old, and my one-year-old. I see their needs. Many times I think I have nothing left to give. I start to say in my heart, I can't. But every time that word crosses my mind, I remember the motto. I can. Not only this, but I ought and I will. Thank you, Miss Mason, for showing me the way of the will. Yes, I will. Wow. There is very touching. Um, wow, that that definitely adding that to your prayer, I think that shows us the magnitude of what she intended with those four verbs. Um, and I think that when I reflect back, when I first met Charlotte Mason, um, I had a difficult time um, a week after starting my first, actually not even a full week, starting my first week of homeschooling, my six years old, my husband had a uh, emergency heart surgery. Mm. See, 
um, that brought memories when you shared about Barbara. So, mm. and when we realize that we have, we can, because we ought and we will, because we know who we are, right? So her motto, um, yeah, I, I feel sometimes we recite very robotically without grasping how deep is the meaning. So, <laughs> and they're they're powerful words. I mean, they're powerful words that impacted you. They've impacted me. They've impacted countless parents and students for for more than the past hundred years. And uh, you know, as we said, it was the motto for the Parents Union School. So one of my most prized possessions, someone gave me um, a medallion of uh, of the badge of the Parents Union School badge, and mm-hmm. it's a picture of the Skylark, and I actually wear it as a as a necklace, and it's mm-hmm. um it's the Skylark, and then it has the motto, um, I I am, I can, I ought, I will. So I actually wear the motto. I actually wear the motto around my neck. <laughs> Um, so it's a constant companion really for me. And, uh, so that, you know, that points to the fact that we're, we're not, when we talk about the motto, it's not just an academic discussion. We're talking about words and, and ideas that, that are very powerful and that have impacted a lot of people's lives. Yes. Amen to that. So that leads me to wanting to know if Charlotte Mason invented the motto or did she get it from some other source did someone else uh before her ever use those same four verbs in sequence that's a great question and uh, and i i believe i believe that i i have a theory of when i think those four verbs were first spoken aloud in in a in a public setting I know that they were spoken aloud in this particular setting. I can't prove that this was the absolute first time, but my theory is, and I feel, you know, I believe that this was the first time that they were spoken. And I want to kind of set the scene for you so you can understand what was going on when these four verbs were first uttered in that in that uh, in that manner and in that sequence. So it was August twenty fourth, eighteen seventy four. And it was at a meeting of the British Association for the Advancement of Science in Belfast. So the British Association, Charlotte Mason mentions that a couple of times in her writings, the British Association was like kind of the leading scientific group of the day. And so when the British Association got together to meet, this is where you had the top scientists in the world getting together and talking about the latest ideas. So they were meeting in Belfast in 1874, and their primary speaker on a certain day was Thomas Huxley. And I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Huxley, but he was a formidable advocate for evolution. um, And he was the inventor of the term agnostic. Um, He seems to me a lot more like an atheist than an agnostic, but he was not just a quiet atheist or agnostic. He was very, um, he was a formidable, really opponent to people of faith in terms of their ideas. And so Thomas Huxley um, had come to believe that uh, that in in this kind of biological determinism, he looked at the animals and he saw that that animals just operate according to their chemicals and their nerves that make up their body and in in and in terms of the instincts that they inherit. And they're really just, Robots. Now, he didn't use the word robots. He used the word automatons or automata. But for us today, we think of of robots. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, look, we know that animals are just robots. 
So in this 1874 speech, he said, you know what? It's not only animals that are robots, but people are robots. He said, look, let's just be real. What are human beings made of? We're made of, of chemicals. We're made of atoms. And, and so uh, everything about our physical and mental being is really subject to natural law and scientific law. And so the brain is really just a very complex biological system. And we may think that we are sort of different or special as human beings, but if you really just take the pure scientific view, mm-hmm. we're just what uh, a friend of mine, a philosopher friend of mine today calls, we're just meat Robots were robots made of meat instead of made of circuits. And so Thomas Huxley, for him, that was such a decisive um, talk because he felt that if he could demonstrate that human beings were just automata, then why, where, where's there room for God and for the whole idea of right and wrong and pleasing God and so on, like all of that goes away. And so he was very pleased and proud of this talk that he was giving to this audience of scientists. And so imagine that you're sitting there and this intimidating Thomas Huxley gets up there and he gives this talk and he says, you're just a robot. You're nothing. You're just, you know, there is no God and so on and so on. And so he finished his talk. And so at that point, um, you know, following, you know, Robert's rules of order and so on, a, a gentleman named Lord Ross, he stood up and said, okay, well, um, I propose that we, uh, I propose a vote that we give thanks to Thomas Huxley for his talk. Okay, so he made a motion. I move, I move that we give thanks to, Lord, to, uh, to Thomas Huxley for his talk. And the vote was seconded. And it was seconded by a former president of the British Association. Now, this former president of the British Association. He's a leading scientist in the world, and he's just heard this incredible talk by Thomas Huxley. And I'm going to quote to you what he stood up and said. He seconded the vote, but then after seconding the vote, here I quote his words. He said, I accept all that has been said about automatic action, but I add to it the consciousness expressed in these four great words. I am, I ought, I can, I will. That is to say, I am much obliged to you, sir, for your most amusing and interesting lecture, but I do not believe a word of it. Wow. And and um, I don't even want to guess who was that person, but I might have a guess. Yeah, go ahead. Who do you think that former president of the British Association was? Well, if I had done my Google research, but from what I've Okay, instinct is was Dr. Carpenter. Yes, okay. Dr. William <laughs> Carpenter. Yes, Dr. William Carpenter. And can you imagine the courage? Wow. To stand up at that moment and say, and with all of the credentials of being this former president, and as a scientist among scientists, and to stand up and say, "Sir, you know, thank you for your amusing and interesting lecture, but I do not believe a word of it." Um, and what what was his basis? His basis for rejecting Thomas Huxley's view of humans as robots was these four great words, I am, I ought, I can, I will. And uh, so we know he said that in 1874 and what his purpose was. And he was echoing something research that he had done as early as 1858. 
Um, be, he wrote a book in 1858 called Principles of Human Physiology. He was a medical expert in this massive book um, that talks about all aspects of human biology. But he includes in, in his 1858 book, he includes this paragraph when he's exploring as a doctor and a scientist, everything that makes up the human person as a scientist. I'm just going to read a paragraph of what he wrote. He said, from the time when the human being first becomes conscious that he has a volitional power within himself of determining the succession of his mental states, from that time, does he begin to be responsible for it? Mm. And in proportion, as he exerts that power, does he emancipate himself from the domination of his constitutional or automatic tendencies and makes himself a free agent. And then he said, and truly in the existence of this power, which is capable of thus regulating the very highest of those operations that are causally related to corporeal states, we find a better evidence than we gain from the study of any other part of our psychical nature, that there is an entity wherein man's nobility essentially consists which does not depend for its existence on any play of physical or vital forces, but which makes these forces subservient to its determinations. It is in fact, in virtue of the will mm. that we are not mere thinking automata, mere puppets to be pulled by suggesting strings capable of being played upon by everyone who shall have made himself master of our springs of action. So as a scientist, he's saying there is something inside of us that makes us different from the animals. Mm -hmm. As a scientist, he said the evidence points to, and every person, when you look inside yourself, you can say, you know what? I am not just a product of forces around me, but I have this capacity to choose. And, and Carpenter said, this is what makes me, this is human beings nobility. It consists in this ability. And he called it the will. And so as a scientist, he said, we have a will and that separates us and makes us different and makes us as human beings unique and more than animals. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that was as early as 1858, he was developing those ideas. And so, but it was not until 1874, the same year as the Belfast meeting, that he that he published his book, Principles of Mental Physiology, because he said, okay, my, my former volume was so big, it was all about every aspect of human biology. I'm going to have a book that just talks about the mental physiology, the brain and how the brain works with the body and so on. And it's going to use some of the material from his older books, but he's going to expand on it. And when he expanded on it, in his 1874 book, we see in print this sentence, opening his chapter, opening a chapter, he says, I am, I ought, I can, I will, are, as has been recently well said, the only firm foundation stones on which we can base our attempt to climb into a higher sphere of existence. And so I think that that is where in print, the, the, the motto first appears, the four verbs first appears. Now it's been, you know, people have researched this and it's a bit confusing because he says in parentheses, he says, as has been recently well said. So what is he talking about? Like when was I am, I audit, I can, and I will recently well said. And my theory is that he's referring to the Belfast meeting. He's mm -hmm. saying he's being humble and he's, because he's a, He's a scholar. Normally he cites his sources. He's very careful about quoting and saying who said what, 
But but you know these authors in the 19th century they were a little bit shy about referring to themselves, and so my theory I can't prove this, but my theory is he's saying. Um, as has been recently well said, he's referring back to this dramatic moment a few months before. And uh, But in any event, um, this is really, if you search on it, this is the beginning of the notion of these four verbs put together. And um, so that's that's where I think um, we find the beginning of, of the four verbs and of the motto. Wow. Yes, I, I think that that theory makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, it's true. I mean... For him to have said that and then shortly after have written a book about that, you know, and also knowing that Charlotte Mason was well read, that she read a lot, she probably came across his writing uh, specifically because she, like we know, she studied every aspect of uh, a person's development, a child, right? So when did she uh, first use the four verbs in her own writing? And I'm already guessing here that, you know, if, if we read, if you read uh, Home Education, you'll find that there. So. Yeah, so not only, yes, yeah, so Charlotte Mason was very well read and she has so many references not cited or she'll put stuff <laughs> in quotes and it's so yes. difficult to track down and say who she's quoting. But the interesting thing is that sometimes she does give her source. And so sometimes she gives us a clue as to what she's reading. And in fact, Home Education, what we call volume one, was originally published in 1886. So we're 12 years after Carpenter's book in 1886. And if you look at the first edition of Home Education, the very first paragraph of the book, the very first paragraph of the book says, in proposing these lectures, my original notion was to popularize and amplify the valuable educational hints contained in some two or three chapters of Dr. Carpenter's mental physiology. But the subject is a wide one, and I have found it necessary to cover much ground untouched in that work. <laughs> so this is no passing reference. This isn't like, oh, I'm going to quote a little bit of you know, this person here, this person there. She said my whole purpose, like, it's almost like you can imagine her reading Carpenter's book and her interest in education, her fascination with educational philosophy. Her, She writes about in home education about how she was so frustrated as a teacher that she would get these students, they would come in, she would teach them and they would leave and there'd be no, no real, no difference after teaching. Like they'd come in and they'd have the same bad habits when they left. They would forget everything they learned. And she's like, where's the lever? that actually can make education stick. And she was so frustrated and she was looking for ideas. And you can imagine her picking up a copy of Carpenter's book and reading it and suddenly having this eureka moment. I see this is the lever. This is the lever because Carpenter's book is all about habit and the power of habit and how and how we we find and how habit has its seat in the brain and how our repeated thoughts create new patterns in the physical network of our brain. And so that was such an inspiring thought for her that she said, I'm going to give some lectures about this. I'm going to develop a whole philosophy of education out of these insights around habit. But of course, she realized it's got to be more than that. Mm -hmm. She said, I, 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 my original intent was just to talk about Dr. Carpenter's book. But then she thought, I realized, well, there's actually, we need to bring in more stuff. But it, but it, she was so clear that this was um, a major inspiration point. And so, on on our edition of of Home Education, if you look at page three thirty, mm -hmm. and I just want to compare 
how she explains on page 330 of Home Education, how she explains the four verbs. And I'm going to share that side by side with how Dr. Carpenter explained it in, in his 1874 book. Immediately after introducing the motto, he went through and defined all four points exactly the same way as Charlotte Mason defined the four verbs immediately after introducing it. So first, I'm going to, so Carpenter, we start with I am. So here's what Carpenter defined I am as. He said, the first I am implies that we have a faculty of introspection, which converts a simple state of consciousness into self-consciousness and thus makes it the object of our own contemplation. Now, here's what Charlotte Mason said. I am means we have the power of knowing ourselves. Now, what similarities do you see between Carpenter's and Mason's statement? Well, he, he talks about uh, us being conscious of ourselves, and Charlotte yeah. Mason states that <laughs> the same thing with different words. <laughs> yeah, knowing ourselves, conscious of ourselves. And what is introspection? Introspection. No, no. introspection is the ability to look inside. It's like, so Carpenter's saying, I am. He's saying, I am means we can, we, we can uh, examine ourselves. Or what Charlotte Mason says, we have the power of knowing ourselves. Now, what I find interesting is that Either Carpenter or Mason, does either of them make a statement like, I am a child of God, I'm a gift to my family, I'm a product of the universe? Does do any do they say anything about kind of no? No, I mean it doesn't imply, but it does it always it says that that we become aware of ourselves. <laughs> of right. <what> we are. <laughs> it's not a statement of it's not a statement of identity. Yes. A statement of capacity. Yeah. It's not a statement of of I am in terms of what I am. I'm an American or 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 I'm a Christian or or I'm a student. It's actually a statement of capacity. It's saying I have the power or the faculty or the ability to know myself. It's very different. Um and uh so and and uh, when we think of the other ones, you know, I can, I ought so and those also are capacities, but for her for Carpenter originally and Charlotte Mason's first statement, I am is a capacity, just like the other the other three verbs. So then we go to the second, and here's what Carpenter, how he introduced the second, which is I ought. He said, the second, that we have submitted that state of consciousness, whether thought or feeling, to our moral judgment, which has pronounced its verdict upon it. Now, here's what Charlotte Mason said on page 330. She said, our, she said I ought... We have within us a moral judge to whom we feel ourselves subject and who points out and requires of us our duty. I'm going to say that again. She says, we have within us a moral judge. Now, again, Mariana, what similarities do you see between Carpenter's statement and, and uh, Mason's statement? The moral judgment. Uh, <laughs> judgment. <laughs> yeah, like conscience is that where they're getting, like our conscience. Yes. Where is the judge? Is the judge, it, it, is either Carpenter or Mason saying we have a Ten Commandments that judges us? Are they saying we have a Bible that judges us? What are they saying? They're saying that we have inside of us yes. this uh, conscience, this moral judgment that, you know, like like I tried to think that my son was telling the other day after we read ourselves, the two voices, the yes. right and wrong. Yes. We have that in us. Yes, and so much of ourselves talks about the conscience and the education of the conscience. And so Charlotte Mason is pointing to, I ought, is a reference to 
conscience. It's another one of our capacities. Mm -hmm. We first, I have a capacity of introspection. Then I have this, this conscience. I have this quality inside of me that pronounces judgment. And that tells me whether something I've done is right or wrong are the two voices, like your son said. So then we have the third, which is I can. And so here's what Carpenter said. The third, that we are conscious of a freedom. Again, we are conscious of a freedom and a power to act in accordance with that judgment, even though we're drawn by cogent motives in some different direction. And Charlotte Mason said, I can. We are conscious of power to do that, which we perceive we ought to do. Again, do you see any similarities? Yes, that we have the power to make that, uh, put that more judgment into action. <laughs> yeah, and they use the same, they both use the word conscious. Yes. Not conscience, not conscience, but conscious, awareness. They both use the word conscious. They both use the word power. Now, I mean, I, I to me, the, it's just inconceivable that Charlotte Mason made up that sentence. We are conscious of power. Like she said, she was amplifying Carpenter's book. Yeah. She, you can only imagine that she was, that she had the book in front of her and she was paraphrasing it or putting it in her own words, or maybe she was doing it from memory. But the fact that she even matched the words conscious of power, it wasn't a direct quote. She didn't have it in quotation marks, but she was narrating or restating or paraphrasing this concept. So this third this third idea is an, this third verb is another capacity. We're conscious of a power to do. And then we get to the, the fourth. Carpenter said, the fourth that we, which is I will, the fourth that we determinately exercise that power. So those are the words. We determinately exercise that power. It's interesting words. How often do you say determinately? Um, but there's three words determinately exercise and power. Charlotte Mason said, I will is we determine to exercise that power. Oh, that was very close. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she dropped the L-Y uh, from determinately, because that's a weird word. She made it determinate. So she kind of simplified it for her readers. She says, we determine mm -hmm. to exercise that power with a volition, which in itself is a step in the execution of that which we will. So she added that little comment on the end. Um, but, uh, but, but again, she's using Carpenter's words. And so to me, um, it's, it's clear that she's wanting to, um, to, to really, um, kind of take his scientific sounding words and make them accessible to us. She's not trying to transplant them to a new domain or reapply them or reinterpret them. She's trying to make them accessible to, to educators. Yeah. And that's that that was really her intent. And so if we remember that Carpenter was a scientist, he was not a theologian. Um, I think he was a Unitarian. I'm not sure if he was even a Trinitarian Christian. I mean, he was not, he was a scientist and it was as a scientist and as a medical doctor and so on that he had the honesty to say, look, I observe the human body and I see more than just a meat robot. I see a quality that I call the will. And so he's making a scientific statement. And so what we've just outlined and what Charlotte Mason describes on page 330 of Home Education, I like to call that the scientific formulation of the motto. It's a mm -hmm. scientific formulation. I'm using that because what we'll see is that we find emerging another formulation of the motto, which is quite different from this, what I call the original scientific formulation of the motto. And that was my intrigue after that yes. meeting that made me like, I, I got, I have to find out more about this topic. Yes. <laughs> I need to know. I don't want to be in that. Oh, okay. Um, 
and I, and I and I think it's so neat because throughout her volumes you see her coming back to the idea some of the ideas that Carpenter presents about uh the idea the thinking the the habit right yes. the tangible and the intangible uh, that those are the words that I use for myself um to understand to make sense of how the ideas work in yes. our brain, how the habit is formed right yes. so uh now this new piece of uh big piece of information makes so much sense to get the, that full grasp of the model that I felt uh, it, it was lacking yes in me and I'm like but I read volume one about five times now <laughs> you know but several times um, and um, but anyways now there is something she mentions on that portion page uh, 330 of volume one uh, that she says the steps of that letter of St. Augustine when she's introducing the four verbs mm -hmm. so did Augustine talk about the four verbs at some point why is she bringing that up and yeah that is an that is an excellent question um, and so we have this this um, the steps of the ladder of St. Augustine, which doesn't appear, does not appear in Carpenter's writings, but as you note, it does appear on page 330 of Home Education. So to understand that, we'll see that the plot thickens. Um, <laughs> and there's a fascinating other element in the history here, which, um, which I find quite amazing. So remember, it was in 1886 that Charlotte Mason wrote this in Home Education. Well, it turns out that three years before, someone else wrote about the four verbs. Oh. So in 1883, in 1883, completely independent from Charlotte Mason and her lectures in home education, there was a man named Frederick Farrar, who was an Anglican clergyman and author. And he wrote a book published in 1883. So we're talking, he's nine years after Carpenter, three years before Charlotte Mason. He wrote a book called My Object in Life. And it's just over 100 pages. And really, it's more or less a, a, a kind of 120-page exposition of the four verbs. I kid you not. And so here's how he, he on page two of his book, I'm going to read to you what he says. On page two, he says, it has been said with deep truth that there are four words which man can apply to himself and the utterance of which divides him from the lower animals. Four words, which are the only firm foundations on which we can base our attempts to climb to a higher existence, to raise ourselves on stepping stones of our dead selves, I, and even of our living selves to better things. These four words are, I am, I ought, I can, I will. These four verbs, rightly interpreted, sum up our object in life. Interesting. Now, now we can let's compare that to Carpenter. Okay, first of all, he says it has been said with deep truth that there are four words. Yes, it has been, in fact. <laughs> wrong on that. <laughs> it was said in Belfast. It was said in 1874. Now, I'm going to compare. Remember, Carpenter said that these are the only he introduces the four verbs and Carpenter says, these are the only firm foundation stones on which we can base our attempt to climb into a higher sphere of existence. Mm -hmm. Farrar says, without quotation marks, Farrar says, the only firm foundations on which we can base our attempts to climb to a higher existence. Mm -hmm. You see the similarity? Yes. They're, they both talk about foundations. He's uh, Carpenter says foundation stones, Farrar says foundations. 
Carpenter says a, a higher sphere of existence. Um, Farrar says a higher existence. So, and, and he says that this is what divides us from the lower animals, which was clearly Carpenter's concern. So there's no doubt Farrar is, is, is also doing his paraphrase of Carpenter, but Farrar is a, is a Christian, a Trinitarian, an Anglican, a clergyman. And, and he, he doesn't want to just stop with higher existence. Like what's wrong with saying that these four things help us to climb into a higher sphere of existence? Why would he not be happy to leave it at that? Hmm. What do you wants to, I don't know, bring something um, of Christianity to it. So uh, maybe perhaps other people can connect to some at some level. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't a, a higher sphere of existence. Doesn't that sound kind of new agey? I mean, it's yeah, like, I, mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you go to a church and say, uh, you know, what if you interview, you know, the faithful, devoted people in your church and say, what, why do you pray? And what are you seeking in discipleship? How many of them would say, well, I'm. I'm really attempting to climb into a higher sphere of existence. Yeah, I mean, definitely, because one of the things is that it just showed Mason's words, the high thinking and the low living. So for me to elevate myself to a higher sphere, it feels a little, I don't know, out of place. <laughs> exactly. So I think Farrar, he's like, you can imagine him. He's like kind of quoting Carpenter and he kind of like, he writes this higher existence and he's thinking, hmm, <laughs> like this I'm like writing a Christian book and I'm going to talk about Christ. And he's like, okay, I, I feel like I need to qualify that statement. So he adds a dash. I mean, literally in the book, there's a dash. And then he has this, he adds this phrase, which is his own contribution, his own commentary. He says to raise, he, this is, he kind of says, this is what I mean by higher existence. He says to raise ourselves on stepping stones of our dead selves I, and even of our living selves to better things. So he's talking about stepping stones of our dead selves to better things. Now, dead selves, that's very Christian terminology. The dead selves, you know, we're dead. We were dead in sin. You know, Carpenter's not thinking about our dead selves. That was nowhere on his mind. But here's the fascinating thing. Now I'm going to read to you a poem. Uh, the first stanza of a very famous poem by Alfred Tennyson called In Memoriam in 1849. And here's the opening stanza of his poem. He said, I held it truth with him who sings to one clear harp and diverse tones that men may rise on stepping stones of their dead selves to higher things. Mm. Interesting. So, so here's this poem, rise on stepping stones over their dead selves to higher things. And now we've got Farrar saying we're raising ourselves on stepping stones of our dead selves to better things. So he's taken, so what Farrar has done is he's taken Tennyson's poem and well-known poem in this opening stanza, rise on our stepping stones of their dead selves to higher things. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to, that's what it means to me to go to a higher sphere of existence. It's what Tennyson said in his poem. Mm -hmm. okay? Still no mention of St. Augustine, but what we've done now is now Farrar has basically taken Tennyson's poetic statement and used it to interpret, um, to interpret uh, kind of Carpenter's higher sphere of existence. Now, let me just say one more thing about Farrar before, before we move on. When you get to the end, towards the end of his book, on page 83, he gives, he finally on page 83, he kind of puts it all together and he gives his summary statement of the four verbs. And I'm going to read to you his summary statement of the four verbs. He said, may we, 
in the name and in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ, say, I am, I am thine, save me. I ought, I ought to obey God. I can, I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. I will, I will take heed to my ways. I will keep thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. I will run the way of thy judgments. I have sworn and am steadfastly purposed to keep thy righteous judgments. Wow. Mystery solved. <laughs> So what is so what is he what is Farrar done to Carpenter's four verbs? So he brought all the the biblical references that goes with those verbs, but it's so interesting because Carpenter, I mean, did even he consider that he was coming from a completely different standpoint? Because remember, Carpenter's was making he was making a scientific statement about capacities of a human yeah. being. And 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 Farrar is taking those same four verbs and he's making positional statements about identity. Yes. And also these external statements about God's law and Christ strengthening me, which are all good. I mean, it's so beautiful. Like I read that paragraph and it, it I it's I love it. I love it. Like I would I would be happy to read that paragraph every morning mm -hmm. and say, Jesus, I am yours. I ought to obey God. I can do it through Christ that strengthens me. I will take heed to my ways. Like, this is beautiful stuff. I love it. But what he's done is he's created what I call the theological formulation of the motto. It's almost like we have two different mottos, the same four verbs. But we have a scientific formulation and we have a theological formulation. Mm -hmm. Now... What becomes really interesting is if we go now to the part I haven't said yet, the, the place on page 330, before Charlotte Mason defines the four, I am, I ought, I can, I will, she has this opening statement. She says, I am, I ought, I can, I will. These are the steps of that ladder of St. Augustine, whereby we, quote, rise on stepping stones of our dead selves to higher things, quote. Rising on stepping stones of our dead selves to higher things. She's quoting the poem of Alfred Tennyson. What Farrar didn't put in quotes, didn't cite the poem, she's putting it in quotes. Now, could it be an accident? Could it be somehow that both Farrar and Mason independently made the connection to Tennyson's poem and said, I'm going to take the first stanza of Tennyson's poem and use that to interpret Carpenter's statement? I, to me, that just, that's like, I mean, I suppose there's like a one in a billion chance, but to me, it seems like Charlotte Mason must have come across Farrar's My Object in Life and preferred his explanation of, instead, so she doesn't, Charlotte Mason omits this idea of a higher sphere of existence. Remember, mm -hmm. Carpenter said their foundation stones would get us to a higher sphere of existence. Farrar kept the foundation and the higher existence, but he added the Tennyson. Charlotte Mason jettisons the foundation stones and the sphere of existence completely, even though she had Carpenter with her because she's quoting it. She's following him so closely. She jettisoned that statement because she preferred the much more Christian statement of rise on our stepping stones of our dead selves to higher things. But she stuck with Carpenter for the four verbs. She stuck with the scientific formulation. But the part she couldn't choke down was this idea that the goal is just to get to a higher sphere of existence. Because for her, like 
that's not, I mean, it's about knowing God. It's about being, it's about serving the King. It's about being close to Jesus. And she couldn't bring herself to say that that's our goal is to go to a higher sphere of existence. But she decided to not just stick with Farrar, but to up him one and to take the poem and put it in quotes. But not only did she put it in quotes, she added this other statement on top of it, her <laughs> contribution, the steps of that ladder of St. Augustine, whereby we rise. So where on earth did that come from? Well, there's another poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. By the way, it's my, my youngest son. I, I In my email from 2009, he was one years old. And now he's now he's 15, and uh, and it's been wonderful to see him grow up with his mother and and this uh, and Longfellow is his favorite poet, um, which is just a delight to see. So in in 1850, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem called "The Ladder of Saint Augustine." Wow, the Ladder of Saint Augustine, and here's the opening stanza of Longfellow's poem: Saint Augustine. Well hast thou said that of our vices, we can frame a ladder if we will but tread beneath our feet each deed of shame. Now, what is Longfellow talking about? When did St. Augustine say that of our vices, we can frame a ladder? That we can tread on our deeds of shame and use our deeds of shame to to. to as a ladder to climb. Well, turns out that St. Augustine gave a sermon on the ascension of our Lord, and that's when Jesus rose to heaven. And so this is theme of rising up to heaven. And so in this sermon, Augustine is contemplating like Jesus has gone up to heaven. We're stuck here on earth. How do we ascend? How do we go to where Jesus was? Because we're plagued with sin and the dead self. And Augustine was so acutely aware of sin. And he's like, how, how can we ascend after Christ. And he said, we make a ladder of our vices. If we trample these same vices underfoot. And in the context, he's basically saying, um, if we get into this habit of subduing our sins, every time we say no to a sin, every time we repent, that repentance, that sin that we leave behind, that we that that becomes like a step. And so we build this ladder by repenting one step at a time. We build a ladder of rejecting our vices and we come to ascend and follow after Christ. So so that's the ascension of our Lord by Augustine, which which uh, Longfellow put into a poem and said, hey, Augustine, that's great. Like we can make a ladder out of our vices. And then, uh, you know, and then you have uh, Tennyson um, saying, hey, we can rise on stepping stones of their dead selves to higher things. Maybe that's a reference to uh, Augustine, uh, the stepping stones of our dead selves. It sounds kind of similar. We're building a ladder out of our, uh, each, each, each thing we repent of becomes a step. So, um, so Charlotte Mason decided to call this the steps of that ladder of St. Augustine. Wow. So now, now, now the question becomes, now this has led to great confusion um, because people have actually called the motto, I am, I can, I ought, I am, I can, I ought, I will. They've called that the ladder of St. Augustine. Yeah, as I've heard that before. But it's not, it's not the ladder of St. Augustine. The ladder of St. Augustine is, is our vices that we trample underfoot. Uh huh. 
But as early as early as 1927, so four years after Charlotte Mason died in Parents Review 38, there's an article on the PUS motto, the Parents Union School motto by a woman named Miss um, McClode. And she said in 1927, she said the PUS motto, the Parents Union School motto, I am, I can, I ought, I will, is known as the Augustine Ladder. But you know, but that that's like we can call it the Augustine ladder. But let's 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 be clear on how Augustine's name got attached to this. Like Augustine's ladder is about Bill is about trampling our vices underfoot. Um, it's been put into these two poems. Charlotte Mason quoted the poem following Farrar. Um, but the idea, some have even suggested that Augustine made up the motto, and that's kind of in your question: is did Augustine at some point say? You know, in the first millennium, did he stand up when he preach on the Sermon of Ascension? Did you say, I am, I can, I thought I will? I mean, it, it's actually utterly inconceivable. It's utterly inconceivable that, that Augustine would have put those four verbs together in that order. And here's why. I mean, first of all, there's no evidence that he did. But secondly, here's why it's inconceivable. Because Augustine was in a theological debate with Pelagius. And Pelagius's views were eventually condemned in a church council. But I'm going to quote Charles Hodge, um, and here's what Charles Hodge, systematic theologian, he said, the radical principle of Pelagian theory is that ability limits obligation. Quote, if I ought, I can, quote, is the aphorism on which the whole system rests. Augustine's celebrated prayer, give what you command and command what you will, was pronounced by Pelagius in absurdity because it assumed that God can demand more than man render and what man must receive as a gift. So, so the, the whole idea of saying, I ought, therefore I can, that was to Augustine heresy. That was Pelagius. Because remember, Pelagius was the guy who said, we don't really have a sinful nature. Like, we don't really like we like we're born with built in with I can I ought or I ought I can I'm sorry like Pelagius said that that's human nature is I ought I can like if there's something that we're supposed to do according to Pelagius we can do it Christ can help us but we can do it without him if we really need to so his his whole thing according to Charles Hodge in quotes Charles Hodge said that Pelagius's kind of motto was I ought I can and Augustine was like I can only do what God gives me to do. Like, God, if you want to command me to do something, you have to make me able to do it. And Pelagius said, that's nuts. Like, why do you, how could you have a sense of awe to not be able to do it? Like, why would you ever have a sense that you should do something and not be able to do it? But Augustine was like, no, we don't have the power to do it. So, so the thought that Augustine would use the, the phrase, I ought, I can, which was like the motto of his arch enemy theologically is inconceivable. Yes. So it's this great irony that we have this motto, I am, I can, I ought, I will, associated with Augustine when nothing could be further from, from his notion of, of his emphasis on depravity and the need of Christ to, to give us the power to do what is right. Yeah, I, I, I only wonder if Charlotte Mason, <laughs> with all due respect, was what, using some of her humor that we see throughout her writings every now mm. and then. I mean, I don't know, because... It's it's clearly two different things, um, you know, the capacities, which is this word that now I have this better understanding of what she brings, because she's talking about that on the chapter about conscience. That's when she introduces it. But yes. it's so interesting that she brings then St. Augustine, the poems and all the reference. Um, 
Right. And so I think that Charlotte Mason is pulling in the ladder of Augustine, not because she's trying to shift us from a scientific to a theological formulation of I am, I cannot, I will. I think she just didn't like the higher sphere of existence. And she wanted to make it really clear what our goal was. And she needed to, and, and she needed to bring in now the sense of humor. That's an interesting one. I mean, I think she just assumed though, that when she would say like, this is the ladder of St. Augustine, she would assume that her readers knew that that was a poem by Longfellow and that she wasn't saying that, that she was quoting St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. Which if she was, she probably would have quoted him in Latin for that matter, because he wrote in Latin. I mean, when she says the latter of St. Augustine, she assumes that her readers recognize, oh, that's the Longfellow poem. Oh, there's quoting from the Tennyson poem. And oh, I get it. And so she's kind of like, but maybe in a serious element, she's saying, okay, when Augustine, you know, when 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 Augustine said we can trample our vices underfoot, you know, maybe Charlotte Mason is saying that there's a scientific companion to that. How do we trample our vices underfoot if we don't at some point, at some point, we have to make the choice and say, I will. And so maybe she's saying, look, you want, you know, this vision of of that Augustine gives us of following Christ in his ascension by trampling our vices underfoot. Where does one find the capacity to do that when you're plagued with besetting sin, when you're plagued with besetting habits? And when she writes in in uh, what I think is parents and children about how how can you know, how is it possible that somebody who's who's an alcoholic and who's born into depravity? How can that person ever rise out of it? Where is Christian theology? It com- claims that conversion is possible. But is it really? And Charlotte Mason says, actually, it is possible because human beings are divine are designed to change. We're designed with, with neuroplasticity. We're designed with brains that can be shaped and folded. We are not victims. We are not automata. We're not robots. We're not victims of our circumstances. She said, yes, this ladder of St. Augustine, it is scientifically possible. It is not an impossibility. It's not a crazy thing that, that, that Christian theology teaches that it's possible to convert. It's possible to become sanctified because our physical bodies were designed for sanctification. We are designed to form new habits. But what she says is we need to marry the physiological understanding of the brain to the theological concept of sanctification. She's putting those together. Wow. She did such a, I mean, I'm speechless of just the the thought, because like I said, a lot of this is new to me and not having uh, as a modern reader and not having the knowledge of all the poems. I mean, I didn't grow up exposed to any British poetry in Brazil, (laughs) but, but I think that, um, just looking it back and doing, you know, connecting, making those science of relations. I mean, all her science of relations here is 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 just so beautiful. It amplifies, you know, I think she was very, did so beautiful. She amplified those, those two things that go together. It's yes. not one or the other. Yes. And that makes, I mean, so much sense. Yes. Um, on how I see things now. I mean, I still gonna have to digest a lot of these ideas, but I feel like, yeah, as we because she talks about it, and that's one of one of the things I hear a lot from moms is her books are once we get over the language barrier, they are so practical on how I can be a better Christian, on how I can attain those things that we are called, that God calls us to do. Yeah. Right? And and I think that most importantly is how we have then her writings to equip us then to give that gift to our children 
um, as, I, as I think I mentioned to you, as I'm, I'm reading this to help my children, but this has helping me yes. so much yes. and how I can put those four verbs in the sequence in order and to really um, achieve this <laughs> higher sphere Yes. in the I, Christian I, way. Yes. <laughs> right. So, wow, that is a lot to process and to think, but I think this is so beautiful because I've never seen and I mean I've been reading listening researching reading her her own words but I don't I correct me if I'm wrong but there's no other place where all this comes together in this way in this how one one thing goes you know how Carpenter introduced that Augustine sermons I mean there's no other place we can see that <laughs> no I mean I think this is where Charlotte Mason's contribution was so unique and it was how she was able to um, take a sign take all of the insights from science the revelation of science and take Christian revelation and not set them as in opposition, but she had faith that God was the author of both. And so she had faith that as educationalists, we could look at the, the, at, the at our physical makeup as human beings and what's revealed to us in scripture and both are revelations from God. And so I think that's what makes her philosophy of education so unique. Yes. Yes. It's extremely helpful when I, even when I have, something to change in my homeschool or whatever life in general right i just kind of go look at the atmosphere the discipline of habits what kind of living ideas and a lot of the times like i can troubleshoot just by going through those three tools mm. let's say right to that model <laughs> to yes. them the other model right so when then did this become a model and what was it shallow Mason's decision then to make this a model. Well, so remember, this is the um, so this is the parents' union school motto. And just for a little bit of timing, so um, originally the parents' union school was called the parents' review school. So originally it was named after the parents' review, and the first parents' review school opened in 1894. So that's eight years after home education, and it was um, renamed the parents' union school in 1907. So the question becomes, um, who, who chose to make this the motto of the Parents' Union School? And uh, in 1932, Elsie Kitching said that Charlotte Mason chose the motto. Okay. Now, Elsie Kitching was Charlotte Mason's assistant. I think that she's more qualified than anyone else to kind of interpret Charlotte Mason. She surprised her own contemporaries after Charlotte Mason's death with her ability to quote Charlotte Mason and say what she would have said and done. So if Elsie Kitching says that Charlotte Mason chose the motto, I'm inclined to, to believe that. And furthermore, in 1951, Dorothea Steinthal also wrote that it was Charlotte Mason who chose the motto. So we have Elsie Kitching and Steinthal both writing, recollecting that it was Charlotte Mason who chose the motto. So then we, we get to um, kind of the next piece of evidence. So, you know, she wrote Home Education in 1886, 10 years later, 1896. Now it's 1896, two years after the formation of the parents, the first Parents Review School. In Parents Review, Volume 6, Charlotte Mason writes an article called Whence and Whither. And if you if that that title Whence and Whither might sound familiar, because that that became a chapter in Parents and Children. So if you want to read Whence and Whither, it's now on now on page 251 of Parents and Children, but it first appeared in print in 1896, 10 years after home education. Um, and so I'm going to read 
<clears throat> two sentences from whence and whither. Fascinating and kind of bit of mysterious two sentences. She said, expectation strikes another chord, the chord of I am, I can, I ought, which must vibrate in every human breast for tis our nature to the capable, dependable men and women whom we all know were reared upon this principle. Mm. Now, what do you notice about she said in quotes, the chord of, quote, she said, expectation strikes another chord, the chord of, quote, I am, I can, I ought, close quote. What do you notice about that? The order, I am, I ought, I am, I can. So the order was changed from what she presented in home education. Yeah, so Carpenter, home education, Farrar, they all had, I am, I ought, I can, I will. And there was like a sequence to it. And now all of a sudden we have her say, I am, I can, I ought. Also, she leaves off, I will, mm -hmm. which is also odd, but she has it in quotes. So it's, there's like three of the four verbs and the order has been changed. And it's like, what, what happened? Like, why is she doing this? I don't know why she, in this sentence, she flipped, I am, I can. I have two theories. One is that it just sounds better. Mm -hmm. I am, I can, you know, doesn't that, I mean, it just said flow. Yes. But I am, I ought, I can, I will. You're kind of like, but I am, I can. It's just like, it has a really nice ring to it. So that, that you know, maybe, maybe that's the reason. Another possible reason for the change the order is that starting in around the 1890s, a certain phrase, it's almost like if there were memes back in the 1890s, this would be a meme. There was a certain phrase that just started to appear everywhere in all kinds of Christian groups and stuff like that, um, missions groups, all these people started to quote this phrase. I'm gonna read this phrase that became super popular. It said, I am only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. The something I ought to do, I can do. And by the grace of God, I will. Now mm -hmm. this little kind of 1890s meme, no one knows where this came from. In fact, I saw in 1894, a document where somebody claimed that these words, this sentence was found on the walls of a deserted cabin in the West. And that's where, and that's where the phrase came from. Um, other people have attributed it to a guy named Edward Everett Hale, but the first time it appears um, attributed to him is in 1902. And, and as I've looked in his writings, I can't find any references anywhere. So it's kind of this mysterious phrase that just appeared. It's, it's not now notice that it's really about social action. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not about conscience or it's not about the stepping stones of the ladder. It's not about um, Carpenter's concerns about what separates us from the animals. It's really about social action. It's about saying, I can make a difference. Yeah. I'm only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. There's something I do, do. I can do. And by the grace of God, I will. It starts with, I'm only one. So it's really about social change, which is really big at that time. You know, you had, you had, um, you know, women's suffrage and all these other movements going on. And so it could be that Charlotte Mason was hearing that, phrase and, and his order that the order in that phrase is I am one, I can't do everything, but I can do something. So it has the am, can, ought, will sequence. So it may be that consciously or, or unconsciously that may have been a nudge to Charlotte Mason to change the order. But I have no doubt that this phrase was not 
Carpenter's source because it appears later than him. It was not floating around in 1874. Plus the order was different. Plus the concern was different. So I don't think there's any way that that could have been a Carpenter's source. But I think that those may those are my possible hypotheses for why Charlotte Mason changed the order. So that was 1896. The next year, 1897, we have this statement in Parents Review, Volume 8. In the evening conversazione, Mrs. Boyd Carpenter spoke on links in the home chain in which as a mother, she gave many practical suggestions as to how to carry out the Parents Review School motto, I am, I can, I ought, I will. <laughs> so we have the new, the new sequence, and that's 1897. So that's the first reference I can find anywhere, in any writing anywhere, to the four verbs in that order, I am, I can, I ought, I will, 1897. That was the year after Charlotte Mason said her, I am, I can, I ought. Um, now, if we add all that up together, Elsie Kitching and, and Steinthal saying Charlotte Mason chose the motto in 1897, um, Mrs. Boyd Carpenter is saying, and that's not no relation to William Carpenter, by the way, Mrs. Boyd Carpenter is saying, I am, I can, I ought, I will. So so I think that we can say probably that that the change of the order of the verbs was Charlotte Mason's decision, and it was her decision to make that the motto of the Parents' Union School. Um, even though we don't have a direct uh, statement of her doing so. Amazingly, Charlotte Mason quotes the motto in either order of the verbs only two further times in all of her printed works. The, sec the second of the two references as now in, it, it was reprinted in Towards the Philosophy of Education, volume six. So the two, only other two references to the four verbs in her writings are first in 1903, she said the badge, and that's what I'm wearing. The badge should have the motto of the Parents Review School, I am, I can, I ought, I will. So in 1903, she's restating that's the motto. The badge should have the motto. She's restating the sequence. And then in 1913, she said a sort of correspondence school was set up, the motto of which I am, I can, I ought, I will, has had much effect in throwing children upon the possibilities, duties, and determining power belonging to them as persons, period. Wow. That's it. Capacity. It shows the capacity yes. that we're talking about. That's true. The possibilities, to, and yes, belonging to them. That's very true. It, it says it doesn't talk about their ontological status as children of God or their ontological relationship to the law of God. It talks about the possibilities and power, the possibilities and power belonging to them as, as persons. And if you want, you can look that up in Towards the Philosophy of Education and see where she said that. But that's it. There is, in Charlotte Mason's writings, only one detailed exposition of the four verbs, and that's on page 330 of Home Education, unchanged since 1886. So if you want, there's only one place to go to find out what Charlotte Mason said about the motto, really, and that's in Home Education. This, the only other place that has anything really is this thing you can find in volume six, that it, that it throws children upon the possibilities, duties, and determining power belonging to them as persons. There is nothing else. There is no other exposition or detail from Charlotte Mason on this subject. Okay, so now that leads me to another question, which was another point of intrigue of mine. Yes. <laughs> and that and that phrase of volume six is just, it really, yeah, when you read it, it's like, okay, that shows, you know, the capacity, what she wrote in, so just restates what she presented. So in our discussion, in that discussion, in the Idol Challenge, Many of us, I think majority of us, share that we knew the motto in the version that comes attached with the Bible references. 
uh, to which, uh, you know, one of the verse, the, the forms is, I am a child of God, I ought to do his will, I can do what he tells me by his grace I will. And I have recited that for many years with my own children. Um, so is it, as you know, she, the, she didn't mention that. So yeah. she makes the connection, bringing the St. Augustine letter uh, in the- That's as far as she goes. But as, as far as she goes. So can we trace the orange of that? Is it? <laughs> right. So that's a really, really important question. And so the fascinating thing is, even though Charlotte Mason never revisited the motto in any significant way, mm -hmm. boy, did her followers revisit it. <laughs> and so that's why I think this these four verbs have such enduring power, because they have meant so many different things to so many different people. And and Elsie Kitching, again, who I have tremendous respect for, I don't ever would like to, to disagree with Elsie Kitching. If she if 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 I interpret Charlotte Mason and Elsie Kitching interprets Charlotte Mason and we disagree, I that's not a happy place to be because she is she is very well qualified. But she said she wrote an article on the badge and the motto in 1932. And she had this very interesting um little paragraph on the motto. She said, I wonder what the motto means to each one. There is so much to be said about it that it is not possible to do more than touch upon a few of the wonderful things. Indeed, each one of us must keep the motto in mind and learn more about it day by day. So what she's kind of suggesting, this is like, what does the motto mean to each one? She's kind of suggesting that the motto has almost taken a life of its own. And that what happens is that everybody can kind of find their own interpretation, their own anchor, their own, their own meaning to the motto, and it can become a lifelong companion. And so the PNEU seems to have had like endless fascination with the motto in terms of ways to, to, to explore it. Now, we know that I mentioned to you that, that kind of, Farrar's 1883 theological version, it looks fairly similar to the, you know, the I am a child of God, I ought to do what he, what he tells me and so on, but but that was outside of the, the PNEU. Um, the first person in Charlotte Mason's followers to say, I am a child of God, was in this 1932 article by Elsie Kitching. And so we have we have a theological version of the motto from kind of the, you know, from the second in command, Charlotte Mason's most trusted assistant. And so if Elsie Kitching feels like it's okay to kind of, to kind of promote this theological version of the motto, you know, that's probably okay. But here's, here's how she um, explained the four verbs in her 1932 article, not quoting Charlotte Mason or not quoting home education or Carpenter or anything. She said, okay, for I am, she said, each child is allowed to say, I am because I am a child of God. I am a gift of God to my parents because of their love for each other. So if you have a version of the motto that says, I am a child of God, you can say, well, you know, I'm following Elsie Kitching in her 1932 article. Um, but she adds this really interesting sentence following that. She says, now, Miss Mason tells us about the meaning of the motto in a book which she wrote called Ourselves. So, so you have her. Now, Elsie Kitching is kind of saying, well, the real, yeah, you know, Art, you're saying that she only talked about the motto in that one place in home education. Well, Elsie, Elsie Kitching says, well, no. There's a whole book about the motto. It's ourselves. Ourselves is, in a sense, a two-volume study 
on the motto because you can find it all in ourselves. You can find the power of self-awareness. That's what that's what I am. You can find the I ought because you have the conscience. You can find the I can and the I will because she talks about the way of the will. And so Elsie Kitching is quick to kind of say, look, if you really want to delve into the motto, you've got a, a full, you know, multi, you know, several hundred page commentary on it by Charlotte Mason. So with that, she leads into I can. She says, now I can means I have the power. And in saying it, we recognize that we have the power to enter into the inheritance of I am. But the kingdom suffers assault by enemies. So that's the language of ourselves now. Remember, the kingdom of man's soul. We have these great capacities, but there's this assault and there's all these evil forces that are always threatening to undermine the, the happiness of, of man's soul. And I can is basically saying we have the power to, to keep our man's soul in a good and happy place and not let it be overrun by enemies. And then here's her definition of I ought. The king, capital K, the king calls us and shows us what he would have us to do, our duty. And we know that what we owe to him and we know then what we owe to him and can say, I ought with understanding. So she now links, I ought to the king. What Jesus tells us to do, it's not the conscience anymore. It's the king. But mm -hmm. she's again using the language of ourselves. And then last, she says, even when we have said, I ought, we sometimes go no further. But when we remember for Jesus Christ, his sake, we can say, I will, knowing that the power to act will be given to us. Mm. So here we now we have a thoroughly theological Christianized version of the motto that that says I am ontologically what am I? Not what can I do? What am I? I'm a child of God. I have the power to overcome the enemies of man's soul. I ought to do what Jesus the king tells me to do and I will because and only and if I say for Jesus Christ's sake because only then will we receive the power from Christ to do that. And she's separating, you know, she's no Pelagian here. It's not, it's not our intrinsic capacity. Like Pelagius said, we can only have that power through Christ. And only Christ gives us the power to rise on those stepping stones and to put those vices behind us. So, so there is a rich, you know, there's a rich tradition. I love Elsie Kitching's writings and I've transcribed and read and studied many of her articles. And she was quite comfortable taking the motto and putting it in to this theological setting. But notice that she didn't include any Bible verses. So, so that this, this further development of actually attaching Bible verses to the four verbs, the earliest uh, occurrence I can find of that is in 1951. And uh, 1951 was the Parents' Union School Jubilee. Um, and there was a booklet published called the Parents Union School Jubilee. And within it, there was the, the Parents Union School Jubilee Prayer. And it was written by Michael Franklin, who was the youngest son of Henrietta Franklin. And I'm going to show you what he was the first that I'm aware of, this grown up. He's grown up by that point in 1951. But Michael Franklin um, and Henrietta Franklin was 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 kind of a co-founder of the PNEU with Charlotte Mason and carried on the PNEU after Charlotte Mason's death. So Henrietta Franklin, I, I mean, she was I. She was a powerful force behind the PNEU, not a not as much of the, the kind of interpreter that Elsie Kitching was, but she was a force behind the movement. And um, so here's the Bible verses that Michael Franklin attached 
to the four verbs. So for I am, he attached two verses, Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am, and Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then for I can, Michael Franklin said, Daniel 1.3, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace. So this is talking about the, the Hebrew boys who were taken to Babylon and how they had this capacity to learn and become and to, to shine relative to the, to the others. And so, uh, so Daniel 1.3. Then for I ought... Um, he picks uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. And then for I will, Jeremiah 44, 25, we will surely perform our vows that we have vowed. Now, what do you notice, Mariana, about these passages? Uh, they are not the passages that I recite at home. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you notice about them? Exodus. They are they are again. I think they point back to the capacity, in a way. Yes, right? but they're they're all from the Old Testament. Oh, in the Old Testament, yes. They're all from the Old Testament. Yes. Do you want, yeah. do you want to know, and do you want to know why? Because Henrietta Franklin was Jewish. Oh, I did. I don't think I knew that. And so Michael Franklin was was quoting. He was limiting himself to Old Testament scriptures as as a as a as a member of the Jewish faith, and he was providing a common ground that Jewish and and, and Christian believers could agree on, locating the four verbs in the Old Testament. Wow, that is so fascinating. Because again, the version I first met back in two thousand fifteen. Uh, the verses are from the New Testament. Yes, they're from the New Testament. And even Elsie Kitching, when she said, like, I will, she linked yeah. it to Christ's empowerment. So yeah. in the P Parent Union School Jubilee Prayer, no mention of Christ. No mention of Christ as, in fact, in, in the I ought, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, this is the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. And Jeremiah 44, we will surely perform our vows that we have vowed. The interesting thing is that in Jeremiah 44, they don't keep those vows. <laughs> They don't keep the vows, um, but they resolve to do so. So they were all from the Old Testament. And, and interestingly, um, I said that Elsie Kitching was the first one to say, I am a child of God, to link that to the motto. He also, in, in memoriam, you might know, be familiar with um, his Michael Franklin's uh, contribution um, to the 1923 book in memoriam. He said, I am, I can, I ought, I will. This is the motto she gave us. I am a human being, one of God's children. I can do right by my fellow men and myself. I ought to do so, and God help me, I will so do. So it's close. He said, I'm one of God's children. But to actually the phrase, I am a child of God, um, that was Elsie Kitching. But, you know, if we look in the the all of the PNEU literature, I can find no place, and I'm saying up until I'm saying like pre uh, Susan Schaefer McCauley, because it was for the children's sake um, in the mid 1980s that launched kind of the new Charlotte Mason era. But in the old Charlotte Mason era, prior to Susan Schaefer McCauley, I cannot find a single place where New Testament verses are attached to the motto. So anything that that applies New Testament verses to the motto is a kind of post. It's kind of part of the new Charlotte Mason era, the post PNEU era. Because remember, the PNEU ended right about the time that Susan Schaefer McCauley providentially came on the scene to revive vitalize Charlotte Mason's ideas, and I believe God um, inspired her to do so and led her to do so, so that Charlotte Mason's ideas could be reborn, independent from 
the PNEU. And so any kind of um, version that that applies New Testament verses is a is a pious, faithful development by the the modern generation. Now that being said, there have been some beautiful poems written by by the first wave, you know, by the first generation of, of PNEU members. And I'm going to share with you a couple of those poems. They're just extraordinary. And this goes to show Elsie Kitching's statement that the motto means something different to everyone. Yes. So in 1906, House of Education graduate leaving Charlotte Mason's teacher training school is going to go and plant a school. And in her, she has this anonymous poem in the Lumile Pianta and it's beautiful. And the poem is called, I am, I can, I ought, I will, using the new, the new sequence. And read, hear what she said. I am a student full of fire and keen the youthful mind to fill, to guide aright the young desire. It is my duty and I will. I can with never failing tact, all furious tempers promptly still, all evil habits counteract. And so because I can, I will. Dauntless and bold, I start a school with every subject freely taught, controlled by scientific rule because I am and can and ought. And when they ask the reason why, against all odds I struggle still, nobly I make the proud reply, I am, I can, I ought, I will. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is so neat. And that just reminds me of my own sentiments when I faced the needs of my family. Yes. And I said, how can I do this? When they ask me, how can you do this against all these odds? How do you struggle against all these odds? Nobly, I make the proud reply. I am, I can, I ought, I will. And note that there is no theological, this is not a, there's no theological element to this. She's saying, I am, what am I? I'm a student full of fire. I can change my evil habits. I can start a school. And I can overcome struggle because I am, I can, I ought, I will. And then in 1918, another House of Education graduate, um, a more spiritual, a theological interpretation, but another four stanza uh, poem, beautiful poem. She said, I am, this is 1918, I am what God alone doth truly know. I pray that he will of his goodness teach me to myself that onward I may go and better, higher ways of life may reach. I ought. He gave a gentle voice to me. Conscience, which whispers to my wavering soul, helps me the wrong way and the right to see and ever to press onwards to the goal. I can what conscience bids do, and I will. He who did unto me his warning give and makes me right to see does still give unto me the power of right to live. I will, God helping, always choose the right. The old saint's words, my guide and watchword still, and call to mind when weakening in the fight, I am, I ought, I can, I will. So notice so many interesting things about this poem. She uses the original order. I am, I ought, I can, I will. She uses the original sequence. She talks about the old saint's words. She thinks this is Augustine's words. But her ought is the conscience and her can is the ability to follow her conscience. But what the I am, it's like what God. So, so it's like this blending of so many of these truths in her own personalized way in this beautiful expression that shows how the motto was able to just 
fill her with 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 uh, with just kind of resolve and direction to to do the right things. Wow, this is amazing. It's giving me the idea to assign my own kids to write a poem. <laughs> I am, I can, I what I will, because it's true. Something I never, you know, that this is new revelation to me <laughs> from Art Middlecoff <laughs> to open my eyes to the possibilities. Right, of course, as a Christian, as a lover of Christ, I want to embed them, um, you know, those Bible verses. But I don't want to do that without yes. the other part. And I yes, think that's right, because that the poems, that's true. Those poems were not those poems were not recitals. They were not recitations yeah. of someone else's words. Mm -hmm. They were someone they were someone creating like 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 Charlotte Mason said that we can only know knowledge is only assimilated when it's reproduced and how every narration is an original creation. And it's only when somebody expresses an idea in their own words that you know that they know it. So these two poems are examples of poetic narrations where the person's not just re repeating the formula, but is basically has made these words part of herself. And so that that's also points to why narration is is such a it's not repetition. Narration yeah. is is and we can't we can't force these ideas into people. They have to they have to uh they have to th these are like seeds that have to sprout in the hearts of everyone who reads these words. Yes. Now that brings me to a, a few more intriguing parts of <laughs> of um this conversation. Well, one thing that we are talking about is reconciling then. How can we reconcile? So you gave those beautiful examples of taking it in, and as Miss Kitchen said, making our own, right? So well, how how could you, I don't know, in our in our homes, uh, reconcile these two ways that we've seen the model, the one that Miss Mason presented and the one that has uh, develop this 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 more biblical view of it, the, the you know the theology part of it. Yeah, so I mean, I think that first of all, you know, I like to say that Charlotte Mason is not an either or, but a both and. I think that in that that she um, she she celebrates truths where she finds them and shows that they can be harmonized. And there's such a human tendency to factionalize and to separate. Um, I think that there's a place for both the scientific formulation and the theological formulation. Um, in our homeschools, I think though that that um, that that uh, that we risk losing the scientific formulation if we don't strive to preserve it. And mm -hmm. I think that the the scientific formulation is so important because it it's really at the heart of Charlotte Mason's teaching about the relationship between habit and will. And habit is incredibly powerful, and uh, and so much of Charlotte Mason's method of education is about habit. But we also need to understand that there's something greater than habit and will and habit go together. And so understanding the, the sequence of, of self-awareness, the, the conscience, the power to choose and making the choice, um, I think that um, we need to, to teach our children that. And, and if we're trying to follow principle 17 in the synopsis, the way of the will and this whole idea of changing your thoughts and so on. Like it, the, the motto is a tool. The scientific formulation of the motto is a tool to help us teach our children the way of the will. If you start with a theological formulation of the motto, it's very difficult to get from there to just change your thoughts. 
Like what, what, what is that? What does changing my thoughts have to do with I'm a child of God? But, but, uh, but knowing that you have the ability to, 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 to choose and direct your thoughts. So I would say if you're taking seriously the Charlotte Mason method and you want to teach the way of the will, the motto is your friend and tool to do that. So don't uh, throw away or, or try to hide it into like more child-friendly words, but but instead really, really explore the full sense that Charlotte Mason gives to it in Home Education, page 330. And, and I would say also that that the, the scientific formulation has a power of, of, of inspiration around the difference between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. I mean, we are so, in our culture today, we're so conditioned with this notion of you're born with your genes, you're born with your nature. I am what I was born with and I can never change. I can't be anything different. It's just my nature. And I run into so many people who will say, well, I'm, I'm not a math person, so I can't do math. I'm not this. I'm not that. You know, I'm just this limited thing. And, uh, and, and it's, it's, I can't, it's an, I can't. And what our culture and what science has taught us and everything today, we live in it and I can't generation. I can't change. But, but the motto gives us a scientific answer to that. The motto says, you know, you are not just a product of your genes. You're not just a product of your environment. You're not just a product of your heredity. You're not just, you don't, you don't, you don't have to just listen to what your instincts or your appetites or your desires tell you. You don't have to just be limited to your circumstances. I don't know when somebody says to me, Art, your wife's getting chemotherapy. It's time to stop homeschooling and send your kids to school. So then I say, you're right. I can't. Mm. But the motto in its original scientific form is an answer to the people who say, I can't, mm -hmm. or you can't. The motto in its original form teaches us to say, I can, because I am given something like Carpenter said, something that separates me from the animals. It gives me nobility and that is the power to choose. And I don't care how many people in 2009 told me that I need to stop homeschooling and send my kids to school and just give up. I don't have to listen to any of them because God made me a free agent and I have a free will. So I think that um, that there is absolutely room for both, but I think that um, that that we need to um, shepherd the inheritance of Charlotte Mason to make sure we preserve the scientific formulation of the motto. Yes, and I, I see now how her education is a life, which she quotes uh, Mr. Arnold, and uh, this motto, the scientific formulation are really, I feel like the tools for the parents and the educator to really work so many things in their homes within ourselves, like your example, if we're gonna just hear what people tell us and we're gonna get stuck on that, I can't. And it's funny, not funny, but I relate to that because when my husband, I had that episode of my husband having the surgery. Praise the Lord, he was able to recover fully because we didn't even know if he was going to recover or fully recover. And he did. And I stopped homeschooling because it was one week with my six-year-old and then rode to recovery. However, about a month into recovery, my husband goes, you have to go back to homeschooling. He goes, I'm okay. Now you're going to do your duty because yes. can <laughs> yes that's awesome and i said you're right and i mean god's providence is amazing because without even knowing i was already living the model in its scientific formulation and to the benefit of my family and myself 
I was very much uh, just contemplating the theological formulation of the model, so to say, which gave me a lot of strength. And it does give me a lot of strength, but now I feel I have even more tools to just keep keep going. <laughs> exactly, because they're both they're both true. That's the beauty of it is that they're both true, and so they both give us give us the the strength that we need and the encouragement that we need. One thing I will say is that um, you know some people might ask, should we even go back to the original sequence? And and I would say no. I would say I would stick with I am, I can, I ought, I will. Um, you know, it's what's on the badge on my necklace. I think if you're going to recite the motto, I think that we should follow that the 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 new sequence because it appears that that was Charlotte Mason's decision to do so, and it's the parenting new school tradition. I mean, it's the tradition that we've inherited. So so I mean, I kind of have a slight preference for the original order, but I but I'm happy to to uh, to accept that this is the motto that 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 has been kind of handed down to us. Um, you know, and and there's like, you know, you opened with mentioning this kind of the more recent, they call it the child-friendly version that's kind of associated with childlike schools. You can see it in the book, the 2004 book, When Children Love to Learn. Um, mm -hmm. It says, I am a child of God. I ought to do his will. I can do what he tells me. And by his grace, I will. I'm not, I'm not opposed to that motto. It's, it's all true. And, and, and reciting the fact that I am a child of God, I ought to do as well. I can do what he tells me and by his grace, I will. There's, that's good. Um, but I guess what I would say is, um, is to, you know, look for, uh, you know, maybe find room to also just say, I am, I can, I ought, I will, and explore things like the conscience. And maybe when in the study of ourselves can be yes. a place to do that. So if you're, you know, if you're new to Charlotte Mason and you're kind of approaching the motto, you know, what I would say is, you know, um, go to, go to page 330 of home education and really read that very carefully. Um, you know, in Essex Chumley, also in 1951, she said, um, Essex, Essex Chumley was Charlotte Mason's biographer. In 1951, she said, Charlotte Mason many years ago wrote a book called Ourselves based upon the motto of the Parents Union School, I am, I can, I ought, I will. She believed that young people both need and welcome definite knowledge of human nature and all its possibilities, power, and weakness. This book gives what Charlotte Mason calls in its preface, a ground plan of human nature, that nature which God created, redeemed, and sanctified ourselves, our souls, and bodies. So both uh, both Essex Chumley and Elsie Kitching say, you know, to really, you know, the motto is, is, is sort of the summary of ourselves. So I would encourage you to read ourselves with your children and uh, and look for ways to kind of fill the motto with meaning as you're reading through ourselves together. And I think it's, but there's a, there's kind of another principle here, which is, um, you know, don't make assumptions about Charlotte Mason. Like it's important to let Charlotte Mason speak for herself. And I think we can get so, there's so many layers of interpretation on top of Charlotte Mason, um, both from the PNEU history and then from like kind of the, the, the post 1984, 1985 era that you feel like you can learn everything you need to know about Charlotte Mason without ever reading what she wrote. And what I would say is, um, you know, the motto is just one of many, many examples of why um, reading Charlotte Mason's original books are important to, to get the, the full, you know, you may get great interpretations from these other sources, but there's kind of, there's often a treasure that's lurking beneath the surface um, that, that you can, that you can look to and find. Yes, and that's uh, something I've been discovering for myself. I mean, I, I do love to read uh, people who are more contemporary and their experience, but never nothing will ever replace 
reading from the, her source. And like I said, I, I asked you for help to bring this to the Portuguese speaking community because we we are still building our um, library of the volumes in Portuguese, but this will be such a blessing in the understanding of something very important. And, and like I said, when I when I when I was looking at the model, I was seeing one thing, but now after this, it's just really changed a lot of of and in a good way that I'm adding um, many other layers of things I can be study myself and, and being able to bring to the atmosphere of my home. Um, Art, I any other final considerations? I, I I think that this will be wonderful to go back, re-listen and ponder and make the motto our own. <laughs> yes. Like you and have narrated, right? And write a poem, whether you're for your children or yourself, write a poem or write an essay. You know, if you want to follow up on some more of these resources, the, I mentioned Elsie Kitching's article, The Badge and the Motto, that's available on charlamasonpoetry.org. You can read the transcription of that. Um, and that's Elsie Ketching's kind of theological formulation. Also, if you want to get, you know, if, if you don't want to read all of Carpenter's, you know, enormous book, um, I did, I do have a recording, um, I call it Habits for Life, and it goes and talks about uh, Carpenter's concepts of habit and the will and how that informs Charlotte Mason. So that's another resource you can go to. And I do talk about, towards the end of it, I do talk about the motto and uh, and its linkage to those ideas. So that's another another place you can go to. But I think um, I really have enjoyed digging into this topic more deeply, and uh, and I appreciate the the questions and and I appreciate your your reflections on this. And and um, and I'm really uh, hope that other that this will prompt other people to think more um, about uh, about you know exploring the motto and developing it and and having it be a tool a powerful tool in their lives. Great, thank you. <laughs> okay. On the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, we share many original and vintage articles, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to miss a single one. We have a new email subscription system, so if you haven't signed up, you can do so at the show notes page. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.